April 3rd, 1953. Today, Juliet and I found the key to the fourth world. We realize now that we have had it in our possession for about six months, but we only realized it on the day of the death of Christ. We saw a gateway through the clouds. We sat on the edge of the path and looked down the hill out over the bay. The island looked beautiful. The sea was blue. Everything was full of peace and bliss. We then realized we had the key. We now know that we are not genii as we thought. We have an extra part of our brain which can appreciate the fourth world. Only about 10 people have it. When we die, we will go to the fourth world. But meanwhile, on two days every year, we may use the key and look into that beautiful world which we have been lucky enough to be allowed to know of. On this day of finding the key to the way through the clouds. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. diary entry mm. hey leslie hey holly hey fiends well we are back with part two of the heavenly creatures murders as some people call it this is a wild ride and i'm sure you're all wondering what on earth we could possibly add to this case and the answer is a lot actually <laughs> yeah so i'm just gonna take care of the business part of this quickly first of all um the opening was another entry from pauline's diary okay obviously, but I just have to put it out there and make sure everybody knows. And secondly, she uses the word genie, which is her pluralizing genius. Okay. Not like genies. Like right. when I read it at first, I was like, what does that mean? But That's it means so two geniuses. That's really funny. Yeah. So, you know, she's making it work. It's oh. fine. Anyway, as per usual, we are positively worn out by all of the extensive research we have done for you all this week. And the only way we can possibly return to our normal state of youth and beauty, that's just our default, is to bathe in a magic elixir known to fiends the world over as... Ooh. Validation, a hill worth dying on. You got so excited. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, it's me. It's, it's my, my turn. turn. And best of all, Leslie, our fiends can fill our waiting pool with this life-giving miracle, and it won't cost them a dime. <gasps> how? But how? You must be asking yourself. Yeah, I know. Well, I'll tell you. Simply head on over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really is the only way to move this podcast forward. Ratings and reviews equal attention, attention equals support, and support equals more and better content for all of you. Nice. Yeah. But if you just can't wait for more We Would Be Dead in your life, don't worry. You don't have to. That's wonderful because sometimes I don't want to. I know. Patience is difficult. It really is. That's why it's a virtue. It is. Correct. So if you, you don't have a lot of patience, you can, or if you do and you just want to be nice, you can support us over on... 
Patreon. There, for just a few dollars a month, you will gain access to our entire catalog of 30-minute horror movies, special mini-sodes, our weekly after show, Host Mortem, which is available in both video and audio formats. Maybe you want to see our faces. Maybe you don't. Both are okay, but like, I don't know, our faces are fun. Yeah, nice. Yeah, you could check them out. Yeah, I think so. You'll also get a special gift in the mail from us, giveaway opportunities, merch deals, an on-air toast dedicated just to you and more. In all honesty, we are here thanks to our patrons. So come on over and be part of the We Would Be Dead family. Yay. It's a nice little queen family. I like it. And if all of that is a little too much for you, you can simply follow us on social media. We are at Would Be Dead Pod anywhere and everywhere you get your content. You can like our posts, share our posts, like and share our posts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Leave us a comment, post about your favorite episode, tell us when you're listening, tell a friend, tell a neighbor, tell the most blindly confident person you know. We need that kind of energy over here. What's their name? Oh, man. They're just like, I'm fucking great. I'm sorry if you don't know it, but I know it. I feel like that's Chad. I love Chad. Yeah. I would like to be more like Chad. Yeah. Blindly confident, plowing through the world. Chad and his girlfriend, Marisol. Marisol. She's probably super hot. That's a hot name. Yeah. All right. Confident as fuck. I know. They really are. Man. Well, I mean, maybe some of it will rub off if you tell them. So then your friends and Chad and Marisol can become fiends and we can all hang out together. They'll either be insufferable or inspiring or both. Yeah. (laughs) Probably both. Probably both. Yeah. I think that's the way. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Well, that's all I have in the way of news this week. It's a quick news week. I set everything up last week and you had all your news. I did. You might have more this week. I don't know. I will ask you. So, Leslie, do you have anything to add before we get back to it? I, uh, well, no, I don't. All right. I don't have anything. Okay, then. I let it all out last week. You sure did. Mm -hmm. Told everybody all the things. I think uh, Dipper has a lot to say this week. Yeah, you might hear Dipper <laughs> in the background for a little bit in this episode, and we're just we're just going to accept it because yeah. uh, Will's not here, and I can't stop him from screaming at the tow truck down the street. So, so yeah. Just enjoy. I mean, who doesn't like a little pup? He's out further now. <laughs> He's not, like, in the room. Yeah. He's, like, out in the living room, yeah. so they may not hear him, but they might. I they don't might, know. and they'll be excited. <laughs> Dipper made a guest appearance. Yeah. He's insisting on getting royalties. Yes. <laughs> God, very business-minded yes. dog. Anyway, <laughs> all right then, on with the show. When we left off last week, Pauline had confessed to her mother's murder, and Juliet had confessed to being near the murder. Right. <laughs> But she saw a pretty rock and she ran away. Right, right. Okay. (laughs) But the detectives and Juliet's extra dad had a sneaking suspicion that they still weren't really telling the whole truth. So Mm. even Juliet's own family was like, this feels not totally right. Okay. And um, so they kind of, especially to Juliet, because Pauline's done, she she done confessed to almost everything. They said like, listen, if you're not telling the whole truth, you're going to want to do that soon because it's going to come back to haunt you. Hmm. So she had like a day to think about it or so. That's how they get kids. They just like lie to them. 
You're really going to want to tell it. No, yeah. she could have just no, taken that. Never. Although she couldn't have any. Here's okay. why. So, she could have just lived a full life. She could have just been like, I saw that rock and then I got to go. Bye. So as we know, detectives had previously spoken to Pauline and her father, Herbert. As they dug into the life of the Reaper Parker family, they discovered Herbert and Honora's past. So if you remember last week, we found out that they had never married. Herbert had a previous marriage and they just kind of ran off together. Mm -hmm. And so at this point, this is when the police take uh, the last name of Reaper off of all of Honora and Polly's documents. So they're referred to as Parker from this point on out. Okay. Which I think is kind of sad. Yeah. As we said last week, like, why make Pauline change her last name? She, Herbert was her biological father. So there was no, like, legal reason she needed to change her name. But I think what we didn't discuss last week was the fact that he may not have wanted her to have his last name at this point. Maybe. He may Mm -hmm. have said, like, take my last name off her. Yeah. But I also don't know if that was just how it was because she wasn't. I don't either. The, like, proper daughter. Because it doesn't really make a bit of difference in the rest of this case. I didn't, like, research the heck out of it. But it is, like, kind of sticks out to most people. They're like, well, okay, like, they weren't married. But that, that doesn't mean that Pauline wasn't his natural child. And, like, she could have his last name. Right. But I think it's like a Jon Snow situation. Definitely. Still noteworthy. Still kind of weird. But anyway, um, in his interview with the police, Herbert Reaper makes quite a few references to Pauline constantly writing. So he talks about as soon as she became friends with Juliet, she started writing in a journal all the time, just constantly scribbling. So the police kind of casually are like, oh, um, do you still have that diary? Hmm. She wrote it all the time. And he said, oh, yeah, I, I have it. So they said, you know, could we... Can we maybe have that? And also, can we look in your house? He said, sure. Mr. Reaper was incredibly compliant because he had nothing to hide. So they searched the house. They don't really find much in the house, but they get the diary. And once the diary was in the hands of the police, they, I mean, it's unquestionable that this was a premeditated murder and that both girls were guilty. Okay. They talked about it for like a long time. Mm. Yeah. The question now became how sane they were, as this was not an ordinary diary. So now we, um, and by we, I mean like we, the whole world. We only. What are we doing? We only have access to the portions of the diary that were read aloud in the courtroom. The actual document has been locked up since they got it. Like nobody has Mm. access to it. You can see pictures of like a couple pages that were printed in evidence, but the actual documents, you can't read all of them. Uh, and some pieces of, that were read aloud were most certainly edited for clarity and modesty in some places. Mm. Yeah. But um, we're going to go through things as they stood. I did also cut out some of the entries that don't really apply to the story or aren't really of note because we don't have time for all of that. I can't be like, I did housework today and yesterday Ralph left and we had soup. I don't care. so if you want to read the whole thing though unedited like all of the stuff that was read aloud in court i will provide a link in the show notes this week i didn't last week because i didn't want to spoil anything so let's begin so printed on the inside cover of this diary is this it's like a chart it says the saints mario lanza equals poor mario equals he james mason equals the james equals him Harry Lyme equals Harry the Third equals it. Mel Farrar equals the angry man equals this or they. Could be either. 
Sui Juling equals the last one equals that. Guy Rolf equals King John equals his. Whose plus they equals them. They plus we equals us. Whose plus we equals which. Monsieur de la Tour Darcy equals Jarvis equals what? None of these make sense. I get it. Just go with me. Rupert of Hentzau equals Rupite equals who? Okay, so that's a weird little chart, right? That's very strange. Or it's just like pronouns. <laughs> to us now, absolutely, that <laughs> yeah. is what it looks like. But that is that is not. It's actually a code. Okay. Um, yeah, that's what it sounded like. It's, it's the beginning. <laughs> I know. Please call me it. Yeah. Okay. I am that. Mm-hmm. I will only go by his. Yeah. That is all. Sorry. So this is the beginning of a sort of cast of characters for the religion the two girls create together. And they use these like big capitalized pronouns or whatever they are when referring to these people. They're like, they're gods. Okay. Um, now all the people listed, their real names, they're famous actors and singers of the time. Like Mario mm-hmm. Lanza was a, an operatic tenor who also was a movie star. Mel Farrar was a movie star. They're all like specifically matinee idols. So like Mm -hmm. very handsome guys who played dashing heroes, like knights of the round table and pirate kings and such. Um, They all had a real specific type. And a lot of them were in movie musicals. They really liked a man who could sing. Mm. Only one. at 14? I mean, who doesn't now? (laughs) Honestly. Both of us do, so. Right, but but we're a little wiser now. (laughs) We are, but we still like them. We do. So um, only one of them, Harry Lyme, is actually the name of a character, not the actor. For some reason, they like the character of Harry Lyme, but not Orson Welles, the actor who played him. And this is like a really big deal in the film Heavenly Creatures. I think they just decided to make a big deal about the girls being disgusted by Orson Welles for some reason. Well, I think it's funny because I think there's... Like, we have actors like that where we're like, I love this character, but I could care less about this real man's personal life. That's fair. (laughs) So, yeah, they use the character, but they do not use the actor's name. Okay. Everybody else. That's really funny. Everybody else gets their real name except for this one person. Yeah. (laughs) Whatever. So now all of these deities, these he, they, im, that, whatever they are, they rule over a place called the fourth world, which I talk about Mm -hmm. in the diary entry I read in the beginning. Um, which is a, like a fantasy the girls kind of played in constantly. They just role played within this world until they were separated by law. The diary continues. January 1st, Thursday, 1953. New Year's resolution to be lenient with others. Hmm. Yes, that's it. And then February was pretty uneventful. <laughs> that's all she said there. February was uneventful for Pauline. She talks mostly about housework, about the boarders who come in and out of her home because it's a boarding house. And um, sort of being frustrated with her mom and all the stuff she has to do in life. Just like normal teen stuff. Mm -hmm. She does make a lot of weird Winston Churchill references, though, which I think is kind of a window into what kind of character she is. Oh, my God. Winston Churchill? (laughs) Oh, my God. Winston Churchill. (laughs) It came right back. Came right back. Back around. (laughs) So then on March 11th, 1953, Juliet enters the chat and things escalate pretty quickly. The first entry she's in merely states, quote, Ross and John were home for dinner, to which Juliet came. We're excited. Mm-hmm. Ross and John are boarders at the house, okay, so she okay. comes over for dinner. March 15th, 1953 is a Sunday. Mrs. Hume was very grateful for the cigarettes and kissed me twice. Mm. Yes. Pauline quickly inserts herself into the Hume family, 
And every little drop of affection from Mrs. Hume only served as proof that they like wanted the same thing. So every time she says stuff like that, Pauline like clocks it in her head. She's like, oh, she loves me. I'm definitely part of this family. Okay. March 18th, 1953. We have decided how sad it is for other people that they cannot appreciate our genius. But we hope the book will help them do so a little, though no one could fully appreciate us. I love this confidence. I know. This is the first of many novels and plays they write together. They're just constantly writing things. So they refer to this all of the time. April 3rd, 1953. Today, Juliet and I found the key to the fourth world. So that's the entry I read in the opening. I'm not going to read it again. April 6th, 1953. The days I spent at Port Levy were the most heavenly ones. Heavenly capitalized. I have ever experienced. Mrs. Hume did my hair. She calls me her foster daughter. Oh, boy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. April 23rd, 1953. Mrs. Hume says she wished I was her daughter, too. So I think, as we can see, like, Mrs. Hume's adoration is a big deal. But I think she's, like, making big, lavish compliments in passing. She's just one of those people. Like, I wish you were my daughter, too, Pauline. You're so lovely, Pauline. And just, like, not, it doesn't mean anything to her. Right. But, like, she's taking them as gospel. Right. Which is important. After this, Juliet experiences her recurrence with tuberculosis. We talked about this last week. So this is at the point where she's confined to the sanitarium. And this is all documented really well. Definitely happened. Um, as are all of Pauline's visits to her, of which there were many. Um, and it should also be said that this is the diary of a girl. It's, it's not facts. It's not like found footage. It's just what she wrote. So we're kind of trusting her a lot when reading this. But to me, she seems to be the sort of person that isn't documenting fake things. She's documenting fantasy things, but mm-hmm. like not out and out lying, if that right. makes sense. So anyway, you can guys can take it for whatever you want. May 15th, 1953. Mrs. Hume told me they found out today that Juliet has tuberculosis on one lung. Poor Julietta! It is only now I realized how fond I am of her. I nearly fainted when I heard. I had a terrible job not to cry. It would be wonderful if I could get tuberculosis too. Great. Mm -hmm. Would it though? I don't know that you'd love it. All right. May 16th, 1953. I spent a wretched night. It was a relief to see Juliet looking so well. We agreed it was a great pity I had not TB too, and it would be wonderful if I could catch it. We would be in the sanatorium together, and we'd be able to write a lot. We have decided we are the most incredible optimists. Yeah. Great. You sound very optimistic to me. So yes, that tracks. Uh, So then in early 1953, Juliet is confined to this TV place. um, And in one of the letters that she, or in one of her diary entries, Pauline says, quote, this evening I had a brainwave that Juliet and I should write to each other as Charles and Deborah. I wrote a six-page letter as Charles and a two-page letter as Pauline. She has entered into the thing greatly. So now they stop talking about talking to each other in their actual names. They only refer to each other right now as either Charles and Lance or Charles and Deborah. And later they transition to talking to each other as Deborah and Gina. Okay. Juliet is always Deborah. Mm -hmm. Sometimes Pauline is Charles and sometimes she is Gina. They are not their own names anymore. Okay. Juliet's family plays right along. She calls them, they call them by their like fake names and stuff. Pauline's family is like, no. And they continue to use their actual names. Okay. So. So I'm sorry. Can So the first letters that they wrote, you said Juliet wrote as 
She's always Deborah. Okay. And then Pauline wrote as Charles. Okay. Oh, no, no, no. You were correct. Because mm-hmm. it sounded like you said, and she wrote as She did. Paula, but She okay. wrote as um, Lance really briefly. They were okay. like men talking to each other, and then okay. she transitioned into Deborah. Okay. It's all very complicated, yeah, but, but this is okay. in the world they have created. So in a document separate somewhere that no one ever found, there are just novels and novels and novels of these characters doing things. Mm-hmm. And they are them. They imagine themselves to be all of these people. Mm-hmm. So. May 29th, 1953, a girl who sat at the same table as us in a milk bar said how beautifully I spoke English, that I almost had an Oxford accent. What a refreshing change it was, and several other very pleasing things. So as I mentioned before, having an English accent in New Zealand at that time was like a very posh thing. It was like very desirable. And Juliet had one. So like this is showing how Pauline's kind of like trying to adapt to be like them. Okay starting to speak differently because that's not her natural accent. Right. June 12th, 1953. The school went to see a film. A queen is crowned. I thought the picture was rather boring as a picture, but I picked up useful information for Charles's coronation. Charles is a character, obviously. Mm -hmm. He's going to be the king now. So that's great. June 14th, 1953. Juliet and I decided the Christian religion had become too much of a farce and we decided to make up one of our own. I would agree. I mean... You got to do what you got to do. But again. So far, all of this is. <laughs> they're doing great. I know. To a court in the early 50s, they're like, you did what? Yeah. With Christianity? <laughs> Absolutely not. July 1953. This is just all of July, I guess. Pauline. Oh, this is a summary. So again, because this was read in court, this is summarized. Pauline was caught in bed at night with a boy. Oh. Yes. So her father catches her with one of the boarders that was staying in the house. <gasps> I know. Naughty. This is scandalous. It is. And he's older. He's in his 20s. Ew. Yeah. So this is awful. It is. It's pretty awful. But they never comment on that. This guy gets away scot-free and they never comment on the fact that like he's kind of a pedophile. Yeah. Or a full pedophile. Yeah. I know. Never commented on. Never one time. It is wild. So... And then her diary entry says, quote, a terrible tragedy has occurred. I lay there mesmerized. It was just too frightful to believe. When I got up, I found father had told mother. I had a nasty foreboding feeling at first, but now I realize my crime was too frightful for an ordinary lecture. I am terribly cut up. I miss Nicholas terribly. So she calls him Nicholas, not his real name. Mm. Mother thinks I will have nothing more to do with him. Little she knows. So he had been like sneaking into her room, which is again, so gross and such a violation. You were paying to stay at this boarding house and you were sneaking into their young daughter's room. Gross. August 9th, 1953, Pauline goes to visit Juliet. September 9th, 1953, quote, it was wonderful returning with Juliet. So they visit again. It was as if she had never been away. I believe I could fall in love with Juliet. So this is really important, obviously. The court, like, really runs with this. This is the first proof they have. They're like, well, clearly they were in love. I also take that with a grain of salt because when you're, like, you know, 14, 15 years old, you have, like, wild emotions. Right. And, like, friend love can be super-duper intense. Mm -hmm. So, again, but whatever. Late September 1953, Pauline and Nicholas attempt to have sex, but it is um, too painful for Pauline, so it doesn't happen. Again, summary of this diary entry. For modesty's sake, this is when they don't, like, say all of her stuff. Okay. Yeah. 
early October 1953, Pauline sneaks out once again to see Nicholas. Quote, Nicholas was pleased that I was so early. We sat around and talked for an hour and then went to bed. I declined the invitation at first, but he became very masterful and I had no option. I had discovered that I had not lost my virginity on Thursday night. However, there is no doubt whatsoever that I have now. Okay. Yeah, so she has sex with this older man. Great. October 28th, 1953. This is Juliet's birthday. I told Nicholas this evening that I was no longer very much in love with him because of my imaginary characters. So she out now told this guy, like, I have a lot of characters in my head and I like them a lot more than you. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> now, some people, <laughs> isn't that a wild thing to this say? so crazy. I know. And a lot of people say that, like, Juliet got jealous and that's why that happened. And it's not coincidental that this is her birthday in which she breaks up with this Nicholas person. But I mean, we don't have any proof of that I mean, either. Maybe, but also, yes. also at that age, if she did like Nicholas, mm -hmm. like even though she was close to Juliet, yeah. this would, it would have been more of a thing. Yeah. But she clearly was just like, like just trying to grow up real fast and yeah. live this fantasy life with this she guy. Also, like I don't think she yeah. cared. She also isn't done with him at this point. She does yeah. see him again, but she says yeah. she broke up with him here. Okay. She's just enjoying the, like the drama. Yeah. Him. Yeah. Okay. My God. November 2nd, 1953. Today I felt thoroughly, utterly, and completely depressed. I was in one of those moods in which committing suicide sounds heavenly. Again, something that courts take very seriously, but also, like, this is a teen girl. I know. They say a lot of stuff. We are very emo. I know. Time. We really are. <laughs> December 20th, 1953. Mother woke me up this morning and started lecturing me before I was properly awake, which I thought was somewhat unfair. <laughs> she just came into her room first thing in the morning and was like, hey, she has brought up the worst possible threat now. She said that if my health did not improve, I could never see the Humes again. The thought is too dreadful. Life would be unbearable without Deborah. I rang Deborah and told her of the threat. I wish I could die. That is not an idle or temporary impulse. I have decided over the last two or three weeks that it would be the best thing that could happen altogether. And the thought of death is not fearsome. I mean, that makes sense. Because either if she gets sicker, she can't see her right, friend. Right. So she might as well just die. Right. It's all very <laughs> dramatic. I mean... She's making a lot of sense to me lately. <laughs> so it's pretty obvious that Pauline has battles with like seemingly some depression and some mania because she has flights of like extreme sure. focus and yeah. she's depressed at times. But what the diary skirts around, and maybe it directly mentions it, we don't have all of it. Um, and what medical reports uncover is that it was more than likely that Pauline also had an eating disorder. She loses a drastic amount of weight while she's in this intense friendship with Juliet. And this becomes a constant source of concern for her mother and arguments between the two of them. Oh, okay. So that makes sense. She, yeah. Her mom's probably like, you need to eat or you're not yes. going to see your friend. Exactly. Okay. That is exactly okay. it. So, because there are several mentions of Honora saying like, you cannot go see her again until you eat or until okay. you gain weight. And my two cents on this matter is that often eating disorders are described almost always, in fact, but I'm sure there are some ways that they are different. Um, they're described as a form of obsessive compulsive disorder. Yeah. And I think Pauline does fit that mm -hmm. pretty well. Furthermore, if we are to remember back to our episode on John List, another person that lived pretty strongly set in his ways, secretly in this like kind of weird and rigid fantasy world, 
he had obsessive compulsive personality disorder, which is like a version of OCD that is not anxiety driven. It's a personality disorder. And according to, oh, I don't have this mark. I will put this article in the show notes because I don't need to go find it right now, but it's a medical journal thing. Quote, obsessive compulsive personality disorder is a mental health condition that causes an extensive preoccupation with perfectionism, organization, and control. These behaviors and thought patterns interfere with completing tasks and maintaining relationships. People with OCPD have rigid beliefs and specific ways of doing different tasks. They don't allow for any flexibility and are unable to compromise with others. People with OCPD often don't realize their behavior and way of thinking is problematic. Of course they wouldn't. OCPD is a group of conditions called cluster C personality disorders, which involve anxiety and fear. Symptoms of OCPD usually begin by early adulthood, and a person with obsessive compulsive personality disorder may be preoccupied and insist on details, rules, lists, order, and organization, have perfectionism that interferes with completing tasks, have excessive devotion to work and productivity. Now, okay, this is like a 14-year-old girl, so I'm going to say like this dramatic life she has is her work, essentially, because mm-hmm. they have totally like abandoned school. So this results in neglecting hobbies, which would be what school kind of was, <laughs> kind of flip, and spending less time with loved ones. And they do completely withdraw from their parents, so that makes sense. Right. Having excessive doubt and indecisiveness, using extreme caution to avoid what they perceive to be failure, being rigid and stubborn in their beliefs and way of doing things, being unwilling to compromise, being unwilling to throw out broken or worthless objects. This is when it turns into hoarding. She didn't really have that. John List did. Having difficulty working with others, delegating tasks, perceiving everything as black or white. Like, I can't see Juliet. I'll die. Mm-hmm. We like just saw that. They frequently become overly fixated on a single idea, task, or belief, have difficulty coping with criticism, and overfocus on flaws in other people. At a glance, people with OCPD usually appear confident, organized, and high-achieving. Their exacting standards may even benefit them in certain jobs. However, their inability to compromise or change their behaviors usually negatively affects their relationships. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I can see some of this in her. Yeah. And furthermore, what causes obsessive compulsive personality disorder. Um, There's genetics, obviously, but also it is known to be caused by childhood trauma. One study revealed a link between childhood trauma like abuse and development of personality disorders. Now, I'm not going to say that Pauline was abused. We don't have evidence of that. There are some evidence that her mom smacked her around sometimes, but um, I, I don't have concrete anything. But she did go through trauma, yeah, undoubtedly. And a lot of it was very painful. Remember, she was hospitalized with all those surgeries. Mm -hmm. Children often don't understand why they need to go through painful medical procedures when they're really young. And it feels as though they have no choice and they're not in Mm -hmm. control of their life. It may be for their own good in reality, but that doesn't make it any less scary, especially in a time when little was done to explain things adequately to children. They were kind of like, ah, you just need to do it. Right. And adults could not afford to stay in the hospital with their children. So like she was just alone and didn't know why things were happening for huge Mm -hmm. stretches of time. It would stand to reason then that one might create a world wherein you had more control of your life. Yeah, for sure. So this just totally aligns to me 
I am not a professional. I am not a doctor. But looking at it as I am, seeing so many other cases in our past, that's that's the way my brain connected this. Yeah, that makes sense. You guys can weigh in on it. And I'm interested to hear what you say. So moving forward, December 14th, 1953. I did not go to sleep last night and I went to see Nicholas at 1230. See, we're not done with Nicholas. Mm-hmm. I was very tired and dozed off while I was there. Well, I can't be very masterful anymore, I guess. Mm. Nevertheless, I felt extremely tired this morning and work I would have considered dreadful had it not been that I was living in a daze waiting to see Pandora and the Flying Dutchman. That is a movie. Mm-hmm. A movie about a woman who like hypnotizes men into loving her with her beauty. Mm-hmm. Totally fits into their fantasy world. Mother carted me off to see a doctor after work, which was a half-witted imbecile thing to do. <laughs> Especially as I feel perfectly well. The doctor was a bloody fool. I felt very tense. And then we saw Pandora and the Flying Dutchman. It is the most perfect story I have ever known. The best picture easily that I have ever seen. Pandora is the most beautiful female imaginable. And him is far too wonderful to attempt to describe. So one of their deities was in this movie, obviously. I feel depressed and will probably cry tonight. (laughs) I feel that so hard, though. Like, I'm pretty sure this is... How my diaries out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, a, like that excerpt, not all of them, but that one specific. The all or nothing of it all is yeah. like, it was the best, most wonderful, important thing I have ever seen. I'm so sad. Yes, a hundred percent. So after this entry um, is the point where Pauline is taken to see Dr. Bennett, the uh, try to be less gay doctor. Okay. So um, Mrs. <laughs> I want that to be his slogan. <laughs> it's on his door. Yeah. Dr. Bennett, I make him try to be less gay. Yeah. <laughs> so Mrs. Parker, Pauline's mother, had called for a meeting with Dr. Hume <laughs> to discuss the girl's unhealthy relationship. <laughs> now, she she has formed it in her head. I'm so sorry. I'm just thinking like him just going, try to be less gay. <laughs> Just try. She's like sitting there across from his desk and he's like, can you try to be less gay? Yeah. I don't know. I'm imagining him (laughs) just really centrically saying. Oh, like, okay. Like, I got it. Like he doesn't understand. Like he's also absurdly confident. Yeah. And and clearly gay. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I don't know why. I'm just picturing like Sean Hayes. I like right the, I like how we've recast Dr. Bennett. That's good. <sighs> he's like to sings be it. Guy. He's really like fun. God. He's like, no, no, no. You guys don't understand. <laughs> I'm okay with this. <laughs> anyway, oh, oh sorry, Lord. guys. I like couldn't. I like get it. off of that. <laughs> it's a fun one. The try okay. to be less gay doctor. He has yeah. t-shirts. It's a fun yeah. thing. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, like the reason Pauline's mother put these like dots together that they had an unhealthy friendship was because of like the whole, well, I'm not eating and I'm obsessed and I've withdrawn from my family and I just sit in my room. Oh, yeah. It'll do it, right? Mm. Okay. Yeah. And Dr. Hume was like, this is not that serious. It's fine. Because his daughter was not wasting away and dying. Right. But he says, well, you could send, <laughs> you could send her to my, my friend, Dr. Bennett, who degays people for a living. Bye. Yeah. Right. So that's the whole situation. Next entry. January 1st, 1954. My New Year's resolution is a far more selfish one than last year. Mm. So there's probably more of my keeping it. (laughs) 
It is to make my motto, eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow, you may be dead. Okay. Last year, be lenient with people. Yeah. This year, it's all about eat, me. drink, and be merry because you might yourself. die. <laughs> Treat yourself. That's it. That's it this year. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck around and find out. Okay. That's how we're doing it. January 28th, 1954. Juliet is back. We produced bunches of grapes from the hothouse. We discussed various amusing topics, like if we were prostitutes, how much we should charge the various bods. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. I'm not, I, I, most people were like, what? It was yeah. so shocking. <laughs> but I like listened to that conversation. I'm like, all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you're of an age where you find out what a prostitute is, you're like, how much would you If charge? I did that. <laughs> How much would I make? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that's like super insane. But people did at the time. Now, because of how insane they were when separated, because after the whole um, try not to be gay doctor thing, they did try and keep them apart for a hot minute. Yeah. But like, because this entry says, you know, like Juliet's back. They, they didn't do it for long. They were like, okay, we give up. This is not going well. Just let them see each mm-hmm. other. It's not that bad. January 29th, 1954. I went over to Deborah's room early this morning. So she's staying at Ilam House. Obviously, she's back to doing sleepovers with Juliet's. Juliet's. I went over to Deborah's room early this morning, about 7.30. It suddenly occurred to me that we had not celebrated He's Day. He's got a day. So we decided to today. In He's honor, we ate some birthday cake, drank He's help, played all He's records, and made a little edifice of He. We have shifted His to the gods now. We worked out how much prostitutes would earn and how much we would make in such a profession and should gradually change to shall. Okay, their language. We have spent a really wonderful day messing around and talking over how much fun we will have in our profession when they're whores. We have worked out some glorious plans and worked out a whole new family for our future. Great. Okay. Perfect. So they don't need their family at all. They're going to have a new family. They're going to be sex workers. It's going to be fine. They're going to charge a ton of money. Okay. It's a plan. They fixed I mean, it. They figured it all out. Yeah. February 6th, 1954. On the 6th of February, they celebrated Hymns Day in glittering black and went through what they termed as the Saints Day ritual. Mm. What that was? I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure it was great. February 13th, 1954. As usual, I awoke at five and managed to write a considerable amount. So she would wake up like before the sun. Mm -hmm. So before she had to do the housework, because she, the boarding house stuff, Mm -hmm. she could just write for like hours. Wow, she's a little Joe Mark. Just dedicated. She is. (laughs) I felt depressed at the thought of the day. There seemed to be no possibility of mother relenting and allowing me to go out to Islam. This afternoon, mother told me I could not go out to Islam until I was eight stone and more cheerful. Now I am seven stone, but there is little hope. Mm. So a stone is 14 pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, so Pauline is 98 pounds at this point, which is thin. It's very thin. But also she was at the start of this whole, you know, affair. She was always described as like solid and stocky. Mm. That is not solid or stocky. No. So... It should be mentioned that also during Juliet's confinement when she had tuberculosis, and we talked about this last week, but just to recap, she stopped going to school. And so Pauline was like, well, I'm not going either. Mm-hmm. And then Solid even, nerd. yeah, right? And then even after Juliet got back, they were like, we can't possibly go to school. Right. 
We can't. We've already taken so much time. We're so sick and so busy and so depressed and so dramatic and we have to stay home. Mm -hmm. And their parents were like, yeah. And I need to stop being gay. Just try not to be gay. (laughs) But you know, it's like, you just have to try not to be. Yeah, just try like really hard. We just want to see an effort. Exactly. (laughs) I just want to see an effort. (laughs) Just like look less gay. You look really gay right now. If you could dial it back a little bit, that'd be great. We'd all be more comfortable. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. What you do behind closed doors in your whole world, that's your business. Right, yeah. (laughs) So this diary entry goes on to say, quote, Also, one cannot help recalling that she was the same over Nicholas. She said I could not see him again until my behavior improved. And when it did, she concluded that it was not having his influence that caused it. She is most unreasonable. I also overheard her making insulting remarks about Mrs. Hume while I was ringing this afternoon. I was livid. I am very glad because the Humes sympathize with me and it is nice to feel that adults realize what mother is. Dr. Hume is going to do something about it, I think. Why could mother not die? Dozens of people are dying all the time, thousands. So why not mother and father too? Life is very hard. Mm. This is the first time she mentions it would be really cool if her mother died. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, she clearly wants to be part of the Hume's family as they totally get it. But also what's kind of coded in this diary entry is the fact that like, her not eating is not related to her relationship with Juliet as it wasn't related to her relationship with Nicholas. She just, it's just a thing she does. Right. Which is again, why a lot of people speculate that it was an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, like, that's what it sounds like. We don't have reports of what she ate and what she did, but and that's what it reads like. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's, like you were saying, it's a control thing. Mm-hmm. So. And that this is just further evidence of that. So mm-hmm. February 28th, 1954, Deborah and I started discussing our quest for him. We have now decided to hurry things up terrifically. In fact, to start now, we had a marvelous time planning the life and flight and how we will obtain all the money and what we will do. Great. This is the beginning of the girls making a plan. And this is again, February 28th. And this murder happens in July. They, at this point, they wanted to steal money in little increments from their parents until they had enough to move to New York City. To become sex workers. No, now they're going to be famous actresses. Sex workers. Maybe also <laughs> sex workers. You know, sometimes you got to do one to be the other. Um, yeah. That's, Go live your life. Yeah. Do what you got to do. But that's where to do it. Exactly. In the yeah. big city. Yeah. And then they'll be discovered by people who are like, you are too beautiful. Yeah. Let's put you on the silver screen. I love it. That's how it happened. So, March 14th, 1954. Mother came out and said that I was not going back to school as she did not see why she should keep a horrid child like me in school a moment longer. The absolutely ironical part of all of that is that I wanted to leave school terrifically, but my pride would not let me ask. So they weren't going, but they were not like formally withdrawn. Mm -hmm. And at this point, she was like, I'm just not going to send you back ever. Okay. All right. And they were like, that's fine. March 19th, 1954. Mrs. Hume has put her foot in it. She has tried to talk me into going back to school. Apparently, Stu, which is what they call the headmistress. Her name was like Mrs. Stewart or something. (laughs) I know. Apparently, Stu rang her as she was worried about my leaving. This is all very flattering, but nevertheless, a bloody nuisance. (laughs) Which is, I want that on a t-shirt. This is all very flattering, but nevertheless, a bloody nuisance. so good. I'm writing that down. I know. I love that one. (laughs) Um, But I also think it's funny that like, she's like, the principal called Mrs. Hume to ask me to go back to school, not her parents. Right. Okay. April 7th, 1954. Mrs. X is known to be light-fingered. 
This pleases us very much, as we will be able to take things, and Mrs. X will be blamed. She will be the scapegoat. Now, Mrs. X's identity was clearly never revealed. She obviously used her real name in this Mm -hmm. entry, but they took it out because she clearly was, like, stealing. Right, yeah. But it seems to me that that means she's probably part of the house staff at Island House. Yeah. I think she's a housekeeper or something. Yeah. And this is someone they could frame when things went missing. Mm -hmm. So every time they would, because they had also started stealing things and selling them. Mm -hmm. So they'd be like, oh, no, not your good silver. Must have been Mrs. X. Light fingered. (laughs) Okay. April 15th, 1954. We read our books to each other. We are so impressed with each other's genius. (laughs) So good. We're just so good at reading. We're really good at writing books and then reading them. We're great at it. April 17th, 1954. Mrs. Hume was perfectly beastly to Deborah. She made her apologize for taking a record from Mr. Perry's flat. This made us feel very cross and childish in a sort of I'll show them so there and they won't make them sorry feeling. This is all hyphenated and it looks really weird. We went for a walk in a field and sat on a log, shouting nasty, jeering remarks to every rider that passed. About 50 did. This cheered us greatly. And we came back and wrote out all the commandments so we could break them. (laughs) All of them. Wow. Busy. All 10. Busy, busy, busy. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, you know, you got to get busy. wonder what neighbor they coveted. (laughs) I don't know. neighbor's wife, I guess. (laughs) I guess we'll never know. But I like that they sat on a log and yelled at cars for a while. That's what they were doing. That's what that means. They were like... You fucking car. And the cars were like, ah. It's such a teenager thing to do. I hate youth. (laughs) I mean, same. I get it. April 23rd, 1954. I rose about eight and helped mother a little before going to Digby's. This afternoon, I played Tosca and wrote before ringing Deborah. Then she told me the stupendous news. Last night, she woke at 2 a.m. and for some reason went to her mother's room. It was empty. So she went downstairs to look for her. Deborah could not find her. So she crept as stealthily as she could into Mr. Perry's flat and stole upstairs. She heard voices from inside his bedroom and she stayed outside for a little while. Then she opened the door and switched the light on in one movement. Mr. Perry and Mrs. Hume were in bed drinking tea. Dun, dun, dun. Deborah felt a hysterical tendency to giggle. She said, hello. In a very illegible voice, <laughs> she was shaking with emotion and shock, although she had known what she would find. They goggled at her for a minute, and her mother said, I suppose you want an explanation. Yes, Deborah replied, I do. Well, you see, we are in love, mother explained. Deborah was wonderful. But I know that, she exclaimed, her voice seemed to belong to someone else. Her mother explained that Dr. Hume knew all about it and that they intended to live as a threesome. Anyway, Deborah went as far as telling about our desire to go to America in six months, though she could not explain the reason, of course. Mr. Perry gave her 100 pounds to get permits. Everyone is being frightfully decent about everything, and I feel wildly happy and rather queer. I am going out to Island tomorrow as we have much to talk over. Just be less queer. <laughs> like, try, try to be. That's not what she means. I still. know. So this whole she knew. I know. So this whole event is actually very important, though, because here is what happened. Juliet caught her mother and Bill Perry together in bed. Who is Bill Perry? I'm glad you asked. So Bill Perry is a man who had been seeing Hilda Hume for marriage counseling. Right. 
And he was having like a lot of problems with his marriage Mm -hmm. so much that they, he ended up leaving his wife Mm -hmm. and Hilda said, well, we just, we cannot leave him out on the street. So let's give him one of the apartments at Island House because it's like a huge homestead. We looked at it last week. There's like, it's like a wedding venue. Right. um, So uh, they let him live on premise and then the two of them had a really easy time with the affair they'd been having the whole time. Yeah. Right. So... (laughs) But he left his wife and Hilda was like, well, I'm, I'm not going to leave my rich husband. Mm-hmm. This life is too comfortable. What I'll do instead is um, just tell him about it and be like, you have no choice. We're just all going to live together as a thruple. Great. Except for you're not like in the thruple. You're just like still providing for us. Okay. So cool. I mean, yeah, maybe he didn't fully want to be. He did not want to be in any part of it at all. This was Mrs. Hume's fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> so. Mm-hmm. Um, but the girls laugh at this, which is like a hugely traumatic event or as, as it would seem to most, but they're laughing at it because as they see it, it is also blackmail mm-hmm. because Bill Perry quickly gave them a hundred pounds. Juliet was like, give me a hundred pounds or I'm telling everyone. And he was like, gay. Right. And so they were like, oh, well, we can use this to our advantage. They mm-hmm. didn't think that, you know, this was the end of their family or anything, but Bill Perry also did continue to help them sell things they had stolen to get money. Okay. So he was like helping them get money. And I think it's because he was a little bit afraid of them Mm -hmm. because of what they knew. He never really admits to that part, but why else would you do that? Yeah. So Bill did, however, share their like plans to move to America and all these like little things they would tell him when he was getting them cash with Dr. and Mrs. Hume. Um, and Dr. Hume sought to deal with it in his, in his own way, which is to say, poorly. So, let's see how that works. April 24th, 1954. I rose very early, did all the housework, and prepared breakfast. It rained cats and dogs, parentheses, panthers and wolves. <laughs> I biked out to Islam and nearly froze on the way. Deborah was still in bed when I arrived and did not get up until sometime afterwards. Then Dr. Hume came upstairs and asked us to come into the lounge and have a talk with him. He said, we must tell him everything about our going to America. So we told him as much as, as that we wanted for acting characters to act each part. Now, I don't know what that means. It's just what they said. He was both hope-giving and depressing. We talked for a long time, and then Deborah and I were near tears by the time it was over. The outcome was somewhat vague. What was to be the future now? We all may be going to South Africa and Italy and dozens of other places or not at all. We none of us know where we are and a good deal depends on chance. Oh, man. Nothing depends on chance. This was an attempt for Dr. Hume to gain more information from the girls and to gain their favor. Understandably, he is not really on board with this whole, we're just going to live as a three-way. And he was not happy with his wife. So in that kind of situation where there's children and there's going to be a divorce, it's not hard to see one of them being like, I'm going to get them to like me more. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to seem very understanding. April 25th, Dr. and Mrs. Hume are going to divorce. The shock is too great to have penetrated in my mind yet. It is so incredible. Poor father. She calls um, Dr. Hume father now, of course. Mrs. Hume was sweet and Dr. Hume absolutely kind and understanding. Deborah and I spent the day soaring between hell and heaven. Such a huge amount has happened that we do not know where we are. Dr. Hume is the noblest and most wonderful person I have ever known. Such a huge amount has happened and we don't know where we are. They still don't. But one thing Deborah and I are sticking to through thick and thin 
is that we sink or swim together. Okay. So most people who read the transcripts of the diaries today see this as sort of an admission of unknown guilt on the part of Dr. Hume, because he does say, according to Pauline, that they're going to be together. He is like, yes, we're leaving. You're going to come with me, according to them. And according to him, he never says that. Mm. It just looks like parenting gymnastics to me. It looks like I'm going to get her mom to say no, but I'm not going to say no because I know she's going to say no. Yeah. Or, I mean, this could also be the start of, like, her delusion. Well, for sure. Let's keep going. We're getting closer. April 28th, 1954. I felt rather tired today, but fortunately, the time at Digby's went rather quickly. Mother went out this afternoon, so Deborah and I bathed for some time. As I mentioned, they sat in the bath together. However, I felt thoroughly depressed afterwards and even quite seriously considered committing suicide. Life seemed so much not worth the living and death such an easy way out. Anger against mother boiled up inside of me as it is she who is one of the main obstacles in my path. Suddenly, a means of ridding myself of this obstacle occurred to me. If she were to die, I spent the evening writing and managed to finish my chapter. So she's like, I don't need to die. She could just die. Right. Easier for her. Mm -hmm. April 29th, 1954. I did not tell Deborah of my plans for removing mother. I have made no definite plans yet, as the last fate I wish to meet is one in Borstal. I'm trying to think of some way. I do not want to go to too much trouble, but I want it to appear either a natural or accidental death. So at this point, Juliet's not in on it yet, but like it's happening. April 30th, 1954. Mrs. C came to tea and was thoroughly objectionable. Her ghastly attitude towards the Japanese has made me fonder than ever of them. I don't know what that's all about. I did not write this evening, but sat up and talked to mother. I told Deborah of my intentions, and she is rather worried, but does not disagree violently. It is now 1030. So she's like, we're going to kill my mom. And Juliet's like, I don't know. I mean, okay, but I don't love it. Right. Maybe we talk about it more. But yeah. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. May 1st, 1954. Mrs. Hume made a lovely remark. She said, won't it be wonderful when we're all back in England? Do you think you will like England, Gina? I was delighted. We did not sleep together as we were afraid Dr. Hume might come in. Mm. Yeah. Gina, why is she calling you your fake made up name? Because it's fun. Mm, Yeah, and uh, because also like Juliet's mom, I get is, I feel like she's very like a teen girl herself. She's just whimsical. She's just not an adult. (laughs) May 6, 1954. We are feeling gloriously happy and we love our new finances so much. They're selling things. Right. Making money. Yeah. May 23rd, 1954. (laughs) We love having money. We love having money so much. Who knew? May 23rd, 1954. Deborah rang to say that Mr. Perry was taken suddenly ill. I do hope he does not die. It would spoil everything. (laughs) Who's going to help them sell things now? Right. What if he dies? Then they're screwed. Yeah. Ugh. May 27th, 1954. Uh, And this is just notes. As an entry for the 27th of May shows that Pauline rose early and went to her father's shop with the intention of getting money from her father's safe, but that was thwarted because a policeman was on watch. Mm. Whoops. June 3rd, 1954. There was a wonderful photo of a portrait of Dr. Hume in the paper. So wonderful that I have cut it out and pinned it on cardboard on my wall. Nice. Yeah. Great. June 6, 1954. We went to sleep at 4.30 tomorrow morning after talking all night. 
It's really cute and childish how she puts that. Like we talked all night, so we went to sleep tomorrow morning. Right. (laughs) We were discussing at first how we sometimes had a strange feeling that we had done what we were doing before. I don't know what that's referring to. We realized why this was. Oh, deja vu. So we had a strange feeling that we had done what we were doing before. Mm -hmm. Okay. We realized why this was and why Deborah and I have such extraordinary telepathy and why people treat us and look at us the way they do and why we behave as we do. So we're getting really pretty manic now. It is because we are mad. We are both stark, staring, raving, mad. There is definitely no doubt about it. And we are thrilled by the thought. All the cast of the saints, except Nino, that's a new one, are mad too. This is not strange as it is probably why we love them. We have discussed it fully with Dr. Hume, who is mad, as mad as March, as mad as a March hare. We are feeling thrilled and scared by the thought. So they're like, everyone, we are like better than everyone else in the world. And everyone Mm -hmm. looks at us like we are super impressive and better because we are crazy. Right. And everyone who we love is crazy. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, at least, at least they know. Yeah. I feel like this is also a way of saying like, we're all special. Yeah. We're all better than the rest. Right. June 7th, 1954. We rose realizing how mad we are. Thought that was yesterday. Dr. Hume knows he is mad too. We wrote a great deal into the saint's book and discussed him. We realize now that we cannot be revolted. We can discuss the most unsavory subjects such as, and this is a summary because they will not say the words, whether the saints' sanitary habits are prevented by sex during a meal. I don't know, whether whether they fuck while they're eating and whether they can be sanitary about it or not. See, this is like a doctor summarized it in like these weird sterile terms, whereas I'm sure this is like paragraphs and paragraphs about them like eating dinner and having sex on the table or something. Okay. That's what it seems to me. <laughs> Great. Is sanitary to eat the food that you just fucked on? <laughs> I mean, no. But it also is like your own stuff. So I guess you're not catching any new germs. <laughs> it's disgusting to yeah. be sure. <laughs> this doctor is just like, I tried to clean this up, girl. <laughs> Could you please be less gay on the table? Yeah. <laughs> just, Ugh, try. just try. Can't do it. Ugh. June 8th, 1954. I dreamt about he for the second time and Deborah about this. Also for the second time. We behaved exactly the same way in each other's dreams. So put it down to telepathy. Okay, All right. Okay. June 10th, 1954. Mrs. Hume has told Deborah a great deal about the old subject and we have discussed it fully. We now know a great deal more. Ooh. That's sex. Yeah. So she gave him the sex talk. <laughs> so now they really know about having sex on the table while you have dinner. Right. And whether or not it's sanitary. Is it sanitary? That's <laughs> why her mom was like, we have to talk about this. Yeah. <laughs> what a weird thing to talk about. <laughs> when getting up on the table. <laughs> Put down like a like a blanket or something. Yeah, you're going to want to remove the knives. Move the food aside. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Don't. There are ways to do this. Let me find my thruple and I'll tell you all about it. Right. Well, if it's done right, you'll remove that food in one swoop. Yeah. And it'll all clatter to the floor dramatically. And you're not eating afterwards. You clearly like got to the table, ate a little bit and then could not continue. So you swipe it all off the table. Although it would be better to eat after than before. It would, but you just, you can't go back. Yeah. You put it on the floor. It just kills the mood to delicately take your whole meal and put it True. somewhere else. Like, hold on. I'm sorry. I have to move all these plates. 
Yeah. Yeah. Then why not just walk up to a bed or something instead of on the table? I know. I don't know. See, that's why they had to maybe, discuss maybe it. Maybe they added a leaf. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's a really big table and they only yeah, ate at yeah. one end and so they just went down to the other end. Yeah. That's why they had to write about it. Right. There you go. June 11th, 1954. We returned home and talked for some time about it, getting ourselves more and more excited. Eventually, we enacted how each saint would make love in bed, only doing the first seven, as it was 7.30 a.m. by then. We felt exhausted and very satisfied. <laughs> well, you would. <laughs> All right. You were both just, you were, you were just seven whole different people. Right. This is just, I guess, what the kids did before TV. All, all night. The yeah. whole night. Yeah, before HBO Max. Yeah, right? They couldn't watch Taxi Cab Confessions. Yeah. They had to just do weird shit on the yeah. table or something. Now, this is what they wrote. They enacted how they would do it. Now, I don't know that these girls were actually having sex or they were just play acting something that was like sex adjacent. Right. We don't really know because the girls didn't say they actually had sex. They were like, no, we were like playing a game. Right. So I don't know how seriously you can take that. I mean, yeah. like, I don't know who didn't make their Barbies kiss and stuff. Everybody did. Right. So like, was this similar to that or were they actually fooling around? And also, it doesn't matter what they were doing. Live your life. It's fine. June 12th, 1954. We came to bed quite early. Well, now that you've discovered something fun, you better get there quick and spent the night very hectically. We went to sleep after getting almost through. We had a simply marvelous time and we definitely are mad, but very pleasingly so. Yeah. We're real crazy, but we fucked for a long time. Okay. That's so interesting. Mm -hmm. June 13th, 1954. We spent a hectic night, more hectic time, going through the saints. It was wonderful, heavenly, beautiful, and ours. We felt very satisfied indeed. We have now learned the peace of the thing called bliss, the joy of the thing called sin. So they're not like play acting. They're definitely right. doing stuff. But they're doing it well, so good for them. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's going well for them. Seven times in a night. Then they're very tired. <laughs> well, you would be, right? Okay. June 16th, 1954. We came to bed late and spent a very hectic night. It was wonderful. We only did... 10 saints altogether, but we did them thoroughly. Mm. I prefer doing longer ones. We enjoyed ourselves greatly and intend to do so again. We did not go to sleep until about 5.30. Obviously, I am writing this tomorrow. They have found something they very much enjoy doing. And are very good at it. Yeah. June 18th, 1954. We had several brilliant ideas to write an opera each to produce our own films and to murder all odd wives who get in our way. So they're like pretending to be the villains in films. Yeah. Like, we gotta murder all our wives. We went to town and bought books to paste our characters in. We planned our various moiders. They always spell murder moida. Like, mm, I'm gonna commit a moida. And talked seriously as well. So they had this fun time, but then also like pretty seriously talked about moidas. Right. June 19th, 1954. We practically finished our books today, and our main idea for the day was to moiter mother. Okay? This notion is not a new one, but this time it is a definite plan which we intend to carry out. We have worked it out carefully and are both thrilled by the idea. 
uh, I think you're both guilty. Naturally, we feel a trifle nervous, but the pleasure of anticipation is great. I shall not write the plan down here as I shall write it up when we carry it out, I hope. We both spent last night and the one before having a simply wonderful time in every possible way. Mm. We also planned a few odd pictures and recast most of the Saints Christmas. We burnt all our film books this evening. So they had like a ritual where they burned everything. Okay. I mean, that's not like a pretty crazy fun night. Yeah. Burning shit. Talking about Moitas. So talking about Moitas having like Roughly an eight to ten hours worth of sex. I mean, that can't, that has to be an you, exaggeration. God damn, they must be dehydrated. Like, what are you doing? Also, they're like sickly. There's no way. I don't know, man. They, I don't know. And I also just want to know what they think they're doing. I mean, they're, they're doing something, obviously. Right. I mean, you, you're at an age where you can, you can do stuff. Sure. So. But like, I don't know. They could just be like dry humping a pillow. They could be. Being like, oh, when the saints go <laughs> I have no idea what they're doing, but they're doing it furiously and they love it. It sounds like most recounts of people like discovering masturbation. Being like, when I discovered I could actually do it successfully, I did it 700 times in a row. Yeah. That's what it sounds like. It's just. It's just now I'm picturing like those raccoons that can't stop washing things. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> they look cotton candy. Yes. <laughs> oh, boy. June 20th, 1954. I tidied the room and messed about a little. Afterwards, we discussed our plans for moitering mother and made them a little clearer. Peculiarly, I have no qualms of conscience. Or is it peculiar? We're so mad. She's like, I don't feel bad about that. And it's weird. Is it weird, though? We're crazy. <laughs> Okay. Oh my God, we're so crazy. Yeah, we're like really quirky girls. This is this is crazy though. We're just like weird girls. Yeah. Hashtag weird girls. June twenty first, nineteen fifty four. I rose late and helped mother vigorously this morning. Deborah rang and we decided to use a rock in a stocking. Confession. Okay, Confession. Rather than a sandbag. So originally, I guess it was going to be a sandbag, like in the mm -hmm. movies, like it falls and whoop, on your head, you're dead. Right. Um, but they said, mm, that leaves a little bit too much to chance. So mm -hmm. rock and a stocking. We discussed the moiter fully. I feel very keyed up as though I were planning a surprise party. The worst party. Wow. Mother has fallen in with everything beautifully and the happy event is to take place tomorrow afternoon. So next time I write in this diary, mother will be dead. How odd, hmm. yet how pleasing. I have discussed various odd saints with her today as I thought it would be interesting to have her opinion. She loathes that and it. I washed my hair this afternoon. I came to bed at quarter to nine. Okay. June 22nd, 1954. The day of the happy event. Ooh. Yeah. I am writing a little of this up in the morning before the death. I felt very excited and the night before Christmas-ish last night. I did not have pleasant dreams though. I am about to rise. So after uh, reading the diaries, like, after, that's obviously where it ends because then they get caught. Right. Immediately they get caught. So after reading the diaries, it became pretty clear that the girls, like, fully planned this event together. Yeah. Juliet then changed her statement yet again to this one. So after she found out they had found Pauline's diary, they, she was like, oh, okay, maybe I, maybe I did. Maybe it wasn't just a rock that I liked. Okay. So, 
the quote, the following day, June 23rd, 1954, Senior Detective Brown and Detective Sergeant Tate returned to Ilam on the strength of a statement made to them by Pauline Parker in Tate's office and because of the diary entry slash a note Pauline Parker had written and tried to burn. Remember that. Uh, Detective Brown testified, quote, I told the girl whom we had reason to believe her first written statement was not correct and that she was present when the assault took place. I then said, quote, you are, sus you are suspected of taking part in the death of Mrs. Reaper. You are not obliged to say anything, but if you do make a statement, it will be taken down in writing. She asked me questions and I told her the girl Parker had said we were to ask Deborah. So she told the cops, ask Deborah. They don't, that's not her name. Right. Okay. And what she said would be right. I asked her for information and she said she would rather not say anything then. Later, she made a statement which Detective Sergeant Tate took down. Detective Sergeant Tate testified, quote, he returned to Islam on June 23rd and saw Juliet Hume. She was quite composed. She apologized to him for misleading him the previous night and said she now wished to tell him the truth. She said she now wished to make a statement. He gave her the usual warning. She made a statement labeled her second statement in trial testimony as follows, quote, Pauline wanted to come with me to South Africa. I wanted her to come too. My father and I were booked to leave New Zealand on July 3rd next. Pauline and I discussed the matter. We both thought that Mrs. Reaper might object. We decided to go with Mrs. Reaper to Victoria Park. We decided that it would be a suitable place to discuss the matter and have it out. I knew that it was proposed that we should take a brick in a stocking to the park with us. Pauline rang me recently and gave me the invitation to go with Pauline and her mother to Victoria Park. I knew this was the trip we had planned. It may have been the day before yesterday that she rang. I left home with my father at about 10.30 a.m. yesterday. I had a part of a brick which I wrapped in a newspaper, so Juliet brought the brick. I had got it from near the garage. My father left me near Beats. I don't know where that is. I made some personal purchases there, and then we walked to the Reaper's house. I arrived there still carrying the brick. I gave it to Pauline. I know the brick was put into a stocking at the Reaper's house. I did not put it there. Mrs. Reaper, Pauline, and I left their place after lunch to go to Victoria Park. Pauline carried the brick and the stocking in her shoulder bag. We went to Victoria Park together and had tea, as I had previously stated. There had been no conversation on the subject of the South Africa trip up to this time. We walked together down the tracks among the trees. There was a pink stone on the path. I dropped it there myself. We went to a spot well down the path, and Mrs. Reaper decided to come back. On the way back, I was walking in front. I was expecting Mrs. Reaper to be attacked, so she dropped the stone so that Mrs. Reaper would see it and bend over, mm. basically. I heard noises behind me. It was a loud conversation and anger. I saw Mrs. Reaper in a sort of squatting position. They were quarreling. I went back. I saw Pauline hit Mrs. Reaper with the brick in the stocking. I took the stocking and hit her too. I was terrified. I thought that one of them had to die. I wanted to help Pauline. It was terrible. Mrs. Reaper moved convulsively. We both held her. She was still when we left her. The brick had come out of the stocking with the force of the blows. I cannot remember Mrs. Reaper saying anything distinctly. I was too frightened to listen. We both went back to the tea kiosk and told the woman there that Mrs. Reaper had fallen and got her injuries that way. My father was called and took us back home. Well, that's a bit different, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. During Pauline's interrogation at the police station, a piece of paper was confiscated from her. Later, during a subsequent interrogation, she grabbed it and threw it into the fire. It was only partly recovered. So they were like, we're going to pull that right out. Mm -hmm. 
Courtroom speculation was that Pauline intended to put the piece of paper into her diary later that day. She herself never made a public statement about the paper. It was enormously important in terms of defining the course of the investigation, of course. On it had been written the following. So this is what they could recover from the little burnt piece of paper. The detective stated that the note commenced with a reference to Pauline finding herself in an unexpected place. She then made reference to having committed her moider. She then went on to write about the treatment she had received. Quote, all the Humes have been wonderfully kind and sympathetic. Anyone would think I've been good. I've had a pleasant time with the police, talking 19 to the dozen and behaving as though I hadn't a care in the world. There were several sentences he couldn't remember, but the final sentence was, I haven't had the chance to talk to Deborah properly, but I am taking the blame for everything. Uh, both girls were then clearly charged with murder. Right. Right. But Pauline had wanted to be like, I'll take it all. Right. Set my love free or whatever. Yes. <laughs> And the court case was like t very sensational. This became a crime of the century. Obviously it would. But the one thing that I found very interesting was that when interviewed, um, people that were there at the time, most of the people in New Zealand said uh, they didn't even know what a lesbian was. Right. Many commented that they had to look it up when they read headlines. They would read news articles that were like, lesbians, murder, mother. And they were like, what the fuck are lesbians? <laughs> Uh, Juliet herself didn't understand the terminology. She didn't even understand that was an option. And when asked if she and Pauline had had sex, she simply commented, how could they? They were both girls. Right. So she, like, even if they were, like, doing it up a storm, in, they, that's not what they conceived of as happening. Right. Okay, interesting. Right. That's, I also thought that was a very interesting comment. As I mentioned earlier, both the prosecution and the defense leaned heavily into this plot line as well, even though both girls denied it, because it proved both of their cases. If they were lesbians, they were crazy. And so they could get off on like an insanity defense. Also, if they were lesbians, they were evil. So mm -hmm. the prosecution could get them on that. Either way, that was the soundest case for yeah. them both to make. So it did not matter what the girls said or what they meant. In the public opinion, forever, they were lesbians. Mm -hmm. End of story. The general consensus among most people who knew the two of them was that Pauline was most certainly in love with Juliet, but the jury is still out on how in love Juliet was with Pauline because she was like the more dominant of the personalities. And um, her diary, which did exist, was immediately burned by the groundskeepers at Ilum following her apprehension. Weird. Ooh, Oops. Okay. Oops. Parents just had it burned. Just they mm. thought we didn't need that. Just gotta burn that real quick. Not incriminating evidence, I'm sure. No, no. Yep. No, I'm sure. So Juliet and Pauline were convicted on the 28th of August, 1954, and this happened pretty quickly. They also, um, as I mentioned last week, were not allowed to speak at all because at this point they're still in whatever they were in, and they behaved horribly in court. They were both super arrogant. Like, Juliet was just stared daggers into all of the jury. <laughs> they upheld this opinion that they were like, yeah, we're better than everyone else. We just did what we just, we're, we're going to get away with this and then we're going to go live our lives. Right. They just thought like, we're going to go home and we're going to go to South Africa and everything's going to be fine. Mm -hmm. They fully believed that's going to happen, which is crazy. Which is, again, why the defense also leaned into like a folly ado defense, mm -hmm. which we discussed with the Slenderman stabbing. And that's a shared delusion where two people kind of enter the same psychotic event mm -hmm. or insanity. Like they really are totally out of touch with reality. But the thing is, that's, that is not what happened here. Because they planned this murder 
exactly as they executed it for reasons that they stated. And they both said, no, we knew what we were doing. When they were asked, they were like, no, we we know that that's wrong. And we knew that we were murdering someone. Right. But you don't think that that's still like them sharing the delusion? It doesn't matter because part of the delusion did not include them being confused about murder. Right. No, I understand. But I would still think... I'm not going to say that they weren't in some sort of shared delusional. But they also both said, no, we knew that we were play acting when we did all that. That's not real. We knew that that was, that was what we, we were playing pretend. That was our thing. No, but they were in a shared delusion of like what their life was going to be. For sure. So, so they weren't 12-year-old girls who, I mean, they, I know they were 14. It's not that much different. Yeah. But they weren't like, they did fully believe that they were like bettering their lives together. They did, but I think it's different because, I mean, you did the piece on the insanity defense. You just have to prove that they knew what they were doing. Right, right. The Slenderman girls thought that they were going to transcend to a palace wherein they'd be protected Mm -hmm. forever and they didn't understand that, like, their friend wasn't going to come back and all that. Like, they just didn't. They had lost touch with a lot of reality. Mm -hmm. Whereas these girls just kind of fantasized. Yeah, but but wouldn't it still, isn't it still insane for them to be sitting in court being like, we murdered this woman? No, I but I, I yeah. understand what the court is saying. Yeah. But what I'm saying, yeah. what, like, is that it's still insane for them to think that they were just going to walk away. Like everybody was just gonna be like, Yeah, this is fine. Like yeah. they are still sharing a delusion. I agree. I agree with that. But that's also a punishable offense. Which is fine. Yeah. I feel like fine. at that point, someone did have to shake them yeah. and go like, oh, I'm sorry, you got to go to jail. You're done. You're done. You did yeah. a murder. But it's still yeah. like a mental Oh, yeah. They were definitely they were... still dialed into yeah. the same weird thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, which they stay in in prison for a little while. Juliet less so. Pauline holds on to it for a really long mm-hmm. time, as you'll find out in a second. So they were convicted on August 20th, 1954. And as they were too young to be considered for the death penalty, they were each given um, like whatever Her Majesty pleases. Mm-hmm. So like the queen can decide or whatever. And they were they were given five years in prison. Okay. Which is very lenient considering it was a murder, but also they're children. So I get mm-hmm. that. Julie, they don't convict people the same way that they do in like in other countries. Yeah, no, they we, do we are very different. Yeah. Juliet Hume served her sentence at Mount Eden Prison in Auckland which is like a super tough prison. Mm-hmm. Some sources say that she was released on the, oh, that the two of them were released on the condition that they never contact each other again. So they said, okay, you've got five years, but when you're released, you can never talk to each other again. That is not written anywhere. It is only stated like orally by some people recounting the case. So mm-hmm. there's really no way to say with absolute certainty that that was a condition of their release. So I don't know, but it, it, it sounds reasonable to me. Yeah. Sounds like you guys are done. You just, you can't hang out anymore. That's yeah. it. Like the Slenderman girls can't talk to each other either. Like right. that makes sense to me. The secretary for justice, Sam Barnett, told journalists that there was no such condition. So again, people argued it. Juliet's release was unconditional and she immediately rejoined, says her father in Italy, but that is contested. There are other accounts that say she went right to see her mother. And I am inclined to believe that because 
her father left before the trial. He mm. took their son. Because remember, she had a brother that nobody ever talks about? Yeah. He was like, I got to get him out of here. And he went to England with, with her brother. And then he, ne- he just like never saw them again. He was done. He was out. Mm. So I do not think that this account is correct. I think she went right to her mother. Pauline was placed on six months parole after her release. And she was obviously in a different prison in New Zealand, after which time she left the country. Pauline actually did try to write Juliet for about the first year. Juliet did not try to write her. Okay. But none of Pauline's letters made it past the jailhouse, obviously. Mm. She wasn't allowed to just keep writing to her. That was their thing, writing to each other. They weren't going to be allowed to do that. Following her release from prison, Pauline was given a new identity as Hilary Nathan and spent some time in New Zealand under close surveillance before being allowed to leave for England. From at least 1992 on, she was living in the small village of Hoo, near Strood, Kent, and running a children's riding school. Because what else would you do in the village of Hoo? What does one do in the village of Hoo? I don't know. And as many times as I read the name of that village, I like, I cannot get over how cute it is. I know. The it's village so cute. Of Hoo. So before we sum up, Leslie, okay. let's have a little fun. Sure. Are I there think any? it's been fun. I, I mean, it's been a ride. Yeah. Are there any other town names that, that are like as whimsical as the village of who? Do you know of any other fun town I do. Names? You do? You do, do know more of the village of who? For sure. Please share. <laughs> yeah, there's a cute little town called Cabbage Patch in California. Oh, like I the know. dolls? Yeah, a little Cabbage Patch. Cute. There's a Christmas pie in Surrey, Christmas England. pie? Yeah. That's cute. Right? There's also a town called Hot Coffee in Mississippi. <laughs> I live in Hot Coffee, Mississippi. Uh-huh, uh-huh. It was named after L.J. Davis's store where he sold the best hot coffee around. Oh, well. World's it's best. World's best. <laughs> he put the sign up in like the end of the, like it was like 1870 or oh something. Oh, my God. And uh, yeah, it's made from spring water, New Orleans beans, and molasses drippings for sweetener. Oh, yeah. Sounds good, right? It probably would be pretty good, actually. Yeah. He never served his hot coffee with ice cream, though. Said it would ruin the taste. The cold, cold coffee? Probably. Oh, not I together know. in the just same cup. Got it. Right, right, right. Okay. Yeah, or just like, you can't have ice cream and my coffee. I don't want that. Anyway, that's a weird clash of, of well, like, I temperatures. Guess I was thinking that that was weird, but then I was like, oh, well, I guess if you get like ice cream dessert, dessert yeah. and you get a cup of coffee. I guess. But. Yeah. I don't know. All right, fair. He's very particular. There's a, also Oatmeal, Texas. Ooh. I thought that was adorable. That's really cute. Wagga Wagga, New South Wales. Duh. This is a, considered a regional center for education. Well, yeah, obviously. Wagga Wagga. Wagga Wagga education. Um, there's also some really weird name towns. Even better. Yeah. There's um, a PP Township in Ohio. Name the kids <laughs> after the PP River. The PP River. Yeah. Oh God, if, um, if you're like seven or eight, you're like. <laughs> I know, and it's its name is derived from the initials of an Irish settler, Great. but it's still spelled P E E P E E P P. No, that's not initial. You yes. did that on purpose. Get out of here. <laughs> Get out of here. Right. There's also a twat Scotland. <laughs> they knew what they were doing. No one says twat more than them. Well, listen, it, they actually have two twats. Oh, of course. <laughs> There's one in Orkney Island, 
and another on Shetland Island. Uh, Twat comes from the Old Norse word meaning small parcel of land. <laughs> I have a farm on my twat. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lake on my twat. Yeah. <laughs> All of this is terrible. <laughs> I want to build a house on that twat. <laughs> well, she has six doors on her twat. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. I've acquired a twat. <laughs> oh, no. I got bored of my twat, so I bought a new one. So you bought a new twat. Yes. <laughs> and um, the last one I found was Bumpus, Virginia. Like the Bumpus Hounds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, named after the Bumpus family. Oh, from Christmas Story. I guess. I want it to be them. It's probably it's not. not. Damn. Um, but their slogan is, Bumpus is for lovers. <laughs> Oh my! This is for lovers. That's really cute. Yeah, I, I guess the Christmas story was in Indiana, so that doesn't check out. But yeah. I really wanted it to be that. <sighs> but yeah, so those there's a lot of fun names though. I love it. There's like, I think there's a fucking Austria, too, which I think they renamed their town to fucking Austria. <laughs> so like they knew what they were naming it. To. Oh boy, there's a lot of crazy ones. There's a no name Colorado. That just, just sounds just lazy. No name. Yeah, that is very <laughs> lazy. Like I need you to get it together. That or they were just like we never named it. <laughs> Whoops, no name Colorado. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> well, those are fun. I think that the village of Pooh ranks up there with them. It's a pretty good one. It's about H O O as well. Cute. Ooh. Yeah, like a little owl. Okay. So that's where Pauline decided. I I mean, to me, that like whimsical little village also like totally fits her. That sounds correct. As an adult, Pauline also became a devout Roman Catholic. And while she has never spoken to the press, in a 1996 statement released through her sister, she expressed strong remorse for having killed her mother. Her sister further stated that, quote, Pauline committed the most terrible crime and has spent 40 years repaying it by keeping away from people and doing her own little thing. After it happened, she was very sorry about it and it took her about five years to realize what she had done. Mm. But she, like, didn't come out of it for a long time. And also, she lived, she's still alive. She lived very much as, like, a hermit. She still does. She kind of just keeps to herself in her house. She would only go to the library or to get food, and she didn't associate with people. And according to her sister, she really kind of did this to punish herself. She was like, I can't even, I'm not allowed to do anything. I can't yeah. have anything in my life. It's just I do this, and then that's it. Mm. So, yeah, it's pretty brutal. Um, And in 1996, when this statement occurred, this is when the press discovered who Pauline and Juliet were at this point. They did not know, no one knew, that Hillary Nathan was actually Pauline Parker. Oh, okay. It's worse for Juliet, but we'll get there in a minute. Mm. So they found her and her whole town was like, you are who? Mm. So, yeah, it's a... The whole thing was pretty shocking because they just kind of disappeared and when they changed their names after they got out of prison. A few years after Pauline was discovered, the press, uh, by the press, she sold her house in the village of Who, and the people who bought it discovered an extraordinary mural. I will post pictures of this. On the wall in one of the like living areas, it's a big round mosaic style painting. Like there's almost like stained glass. There's all different panes. And a lot of the little paintings within this painting depict like two goddesses going through painful trials. And the red-headed one, spoiler alert, this is Julia, being like torn away from the other one, being pulled mm-hmm. away while the other one cries. It's just very 
very clearly looks like Pauline and Juliet. And yeah, it looks like she she truly never got over it. Yeah. And I think that's sad. Makes me pretty sad. Yeah. So then we go on to Juliet after her release from prison. Like I said, I'm pretty sure she went right to her mother in England. And then she moved to the United States and she was an airline stewardess for a little while. Okay. Flight attendant, we would say now. Um, then she settled in Scotland, becoming a successful historical detective novelist under her new name, which was Anne Perry. Now, Anne Perry did real fucking well. She made a ton of money. She wrote a ton of books, these fanciful moiter books. They were all like the same things that they talked about. She actually made money off it. She actually went and did all of the things, which makes me a little bit mad because Pauline like lived in horror, squirreled away in a hole for the rest of her life, miserable. And she just got over and was fine. I guess I shouldn't be mad, but I don't know. It just feels unfair, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And she was pretty famous. So when she was discovered, when it was discovered that this famous novelist was actually a girl who had like helped murder her friend's mother. Yeah. That was a huge deal. She like went on a press tour because of it and stuff. It was, I mean, you can, there are only a few interviews of her that like survive uh, video or something, but you you can find them if you mm-hmm. look hard enough. I really don't care to see her talk about it because when approached about it, Anne Perry is very much like, she talks about how great she is a lot and mm-hmm. how she didn't really do anything wrong and there's not a lot of accountability. She just sounds okay. super arrogant when she's talking about everything. I wonder if she was like told to go that route. You know, I don't know. I mean, according to what they describe her like as a little child before everything, she was kind of always that way. Yeah. So it just kind of is what it is. Okay. Um, Juliet also became a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. God, they really like. Yep. They love an intense organization. That's really funny that they were just like, (laughs) we saw the. Mm-hmm. like how bad Christianity was and now they're just like we love it uh-huh <laughs> so one of them is Catholic the other's a Mormon right so yeah in March of 2006 Juliet stated that while her relationship with Pauline was obsessive they were not lesbians so she said it all the time she's like not stop calling us lesbians we're not lesbians okay pretty we're just intense. a little bit gay yes god I just felt a little queer it's fine yeah. Juliet died on April 10th 2023 so she just died at the age of 84. Okay. Yeah. And that is uh, that is their story. Wow. Yeah. One of the more interesting things to, to most people, I mean, I, I just think the whole thing is crazy interesting, is that they kind of resurfaced way later in life. Like nobody knew that they were these sensational public figures who committed this horrible murder when they were children. Right. They were just anonymous members of their community. And then when yeah. it came about, everyone was like stunned. Yeah. Well, I guess that was like the luxury they had back in the 50s mm-hmm. versus the yeah. 90s. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Wild. Yeah. I think it's very interesting to hear the full version of their perspective yeah. because the diaries are wild. They really are. So I thought our uh, our listeners would probably get into hearing that. It's unfortunate that we don't have Juliet's because. I know. if she, Especially because. It seems like she is the writer. Yep. That I would love to. The fact that they had to burn them. Means they were very incriminating to me. Yeah. And also everyone. So I watched 
there is a documentary. It is not widely publicized, but you can get it on Amazon Prime. It was a pretty good one. It does lean heavily into certain things, but it's worth watching. So I will yeah. post it. And um, they, t- everyone that knew, because they talked to their classmates, mm-hmm. which I didn't see anywhere else. These are interviews with people who knew them when they were in school. Um, and they all say, clearly Juliet was the ringleader. They were like, no, she was like the dominant personality here. So if you're going to go with the folie du mm-hmm. umbrella, if you're going to say that that's what happened, it was Juliet's dominant. Okay. You know, because like if you look at... Yeah. If you I may- think that's what's hard about, about this because it seems like because... Well, I guess because we get Pauline's yes. diaries. Yeah. It... When you said that, when you said that Juliet was like the ringleader, yeah. like the more dominant one, yeah, it that didn't click for no. me initially. But now, but I, but now knowing who she was later, yep, and then hearing what you just told us about her classmates, like and how they felt too. Yeah, well, the media like also like rock tumbled the shit out of the situation and made it out that like Pauline was desperately in love with her, and so right, we we just. We just don't have her diary. That's all. Yeah. But everyone in their, like the little town of Christchurch, which I said I was going to talk about and I didn't because this went on so long, but it is just like a nice pastoral little town. Right, yeah. Everyone said like, no, Pauline was like a sullen, withdrawn little person. And Juliet was like this huge, dominant, worldly personality. Pauline did nothing until she came along and then it was very different. Which I guess... Which that makes total sense. Yep. So, because especially if she was the one that was in love with her or more obsessed with yeah. being part of that family. Right. Because she did get sucked into the whole I want this life. Yeah. Scenario. So that makes sense that like she would have then been driven to, I mean, it very well could have been Juliet's idea. Like, it could have been. We don't know. Why don't you just kill your mom and then you can like stay with us. Yeah, or she was very subtle about it and helped Pauline think it was her idea. Right. Just dropped enough hints that she was Pauline like, you know was what? Like, you know what? I should kill my mom. I, that would totally solve our problems, yeah. like if I killed my mom. Yeah. We don't know. We'll never know. But uh, yeah, I think that one's really interesting. So if you guys haven't already seen the movie Heavenly Creatures, highly recommend. Mm-hmm. However, you should go in with a big grain of salt knowing that one, all of the diary entries I just read are in there word for word. So everything that Pauline says in a voiceover as a diary entry, totally accurate. However, they do take a lot of artistic license with it. It's 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 a good movie. It's a really good movie, mm-hmm. but they make it way more hysterical than it was when the girls were actually living it. Right. And they both made that very, well, Juliet made that clear because Pauline refused to see the movie. Again, another indication. Juliet mm-hmm. was like, I saw the movie. Right. The movie about me, about my life, where Kate Winslet played me. Saw it. Polly was like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> I only go to the library. Yeah. The end. Interesting. Yeah. So. Okay. Toast. Toast. Well, well now I want to toast Polly. <laughs> I know that sounds I weird. No, I, I can't because there's fine. just it's so fine. much. We don't have to. I, I, I do have, I mean, I, I have some feelings there, but. I will toast Pauline's mother yeah. for Honora Parker, who, yeah. uh, well, it's pronounced everywhere as Honora, but she went by Nora. So it could have been Honora. I don't know, but people who were close to her did call her Nora. I mean, Nora's still in there. Yeah. Honora. Yeah. So, toast. Little Nori. Toast to her. 
And everybody else is just so complicated in this case. Like, I don't think that Juliet's family is blameless. Maybe Stu. The headmistress? Yeah. <laughs> headmistress Stu. Yeah, she really wanted to, to get you. Them in. She did. She was like, give them their education. Yes. And if we let our adolescent imaginations run completely wild and free, we, we would be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. Try to be less gay. <laughs> Just try. Can you try to be less gay? No, no, no. You guys don't understand. <laughs> I'm okay with this. <laughs> it's a fun one. The try okay. to be less gay doctor. He has yeah. t-shirts. It's a fun yeah. thing. <laughs>